0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry, or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Uh, welcome. If we have not met before, my name is Tamarcus Raglan. I'm one of the ministers here at Citizens Church, and as always, it's an honor to get to open the Word with you this morning. Uh, if you are new, or if you're Um, visiting for the first time or for the first few times. Again, we're glad that you're here. And for those that are watching at home, um, welcome as well. And happy Father's Day to all of the fathers in the room. Um, This morning, we get to turn to the third chapter uh, in this book of Titus. And this is our sixth week in a series that we've been in uh, for a little bit now. And Paul is going to be uh, shifting his aim a little bit as he continues to instruct Titus. We've seen thus far, as the uh, tagline of our series suggests, um, Paul has been writing to Titus as the leader of this church in Crete, a small island outside of uh, Greece, Uh, to appoint elders and and men who have uh, held and believed the truth of the gospel and whose lives model that they uh, believe and hold to the truth of the gospel, uh, that they might help bring order to what has uh, gone awry in the church and in the community. We saw that explicitly in chapter 1, and then we saw in chapter 2 how that kind of Christ-like leadership was meant to trickle down uh, throughout our familial and uh, immediate communal relationships. Um, as Mike put it, though all of us are not called uh, to be elders by title, we all are called to um, act and behave uh, as elders. And so uh, we get to participate uh, in the, the body of Christ in that way and how we help lead one another into deeper Christ-likeness. And this morning we're going to look at the final chapter, uh, as I said, and he, Paul moves his focus uh, from the central point being the church and the home to now his gaze is out towards the city. And the, the question that is, is at play in the midst of all that uh, he outlines here is how, how will all of these things that he's already said and already stated going to change what's going on in Crete? How can, how, can he, uh, how can they hope to see change in their city uh, with these things that Paul has taught? How is this going to uh, change their their context? For us, how does, this, how does this affect change in Collin County even? Cretan culture was not unlike our culture today in that the way to the top was often thought to be by force and deceit. Um, as we've learned before, it was this kind of like whatever it takes mentality with them, right? The ends justify the means. And so how can one change a community managing their house well and, you know, being a faithful spouse and being gentle and humble and all of the things that Paul has um, charged us to, to live out. How does that actually change the community around us? Uh, one of the things that we get to uh, do here often, if you haven't been to one of our celebration services, uh, that, that is one of my favorite services on Sunday that we get to do, namely because uh, it is an opportunity for us to get to hear firsthand how uh, the lies of the culture around us are just uh, continuously being put at bay, right? Uh, oftentimes, maybe we can we can fall into a slump and believe that all of the things going on in the world and around us, uh, as we just sang, right, that we're fighting this battle and it can feel too big for us, and sometimes it feels like we're just trading water, and then. Up comes a celebration service and we get to celebrate new life in families and then also new spiritual life. And we hear um, testimony after testimony after testimony of people who've encountered the truth of the gospel and their lives have been changed. We get to see firsthand that the gospel is still working in the lives of those around us. Uh, But you know what story we hardly ever hear uh, when when that happens? Hardly ever is. Does the testimony of someone happen like this? Right. They come up, they're getting ready to get into baptismal and they say, hi, my name's John. And I'm here with my my friend Paul. Uh, I met Paul at work. And Paul is, you know, if you don't know Paul, he's a pretty um, arrogant guy, pretty rude uh, in general. Um, You know, I don't know how how much he likes me that much. But one day we were by the we're in office and he asked me if I knew anything about Jesus and I said you know no I kind of heard some stuff but I didn't go to church and he said you know he called me a moron and he said I needed to get my life together and so I came to church and I got right like that's not how that's not how the testimony goes right it's not if that is your story praise God that he he met you uh, however he could but we're we're praying for for better better tactics in the future right no typically typically the story that we hear Sounds something like this, right? Um, I was a student at UTD, and, you know, I grew up going to church, but I never really had a relationship with God. I was kind of doing my own thing. And then I went to this, like, thing called CO, and I met Jenna Hernandez, and she just was, I don't know, it's just like she, she was just all after me. She wanted to talk with me and listen to me and uh, hear what was going on in my life. And she wanted to read the Bible with me and um, pray with me and encourage me. And in the midst of all of that, uh, the Lord started to do a work in my heart. And the more I started to fellowship with His people and in His Word and hear His truth, um, my life changed, right? Like, and that is some, uh, f- some frame of that story is what we hear over and over again how the gospel truth has reached somebody's heart. And typically, right, 10 times out of 10, that has come through uh, the faithful obedience of another believer who has declared the good news of the gospel to them and has modeled the good news of the gospel before them. And so here, Paul's concern for the church in Crete is how they might do that very thing in the place where God has put them, how they might give a proper witness of Jesus Christ, both in word and in deed in the culture Around them, and as we look at our text, we'll see that part of the way that he does that is he uh, discourages a couple ways that we could be tempted to engage with the culture around us um, if we're not careful, and then he um, he encourages us to assume uh, one posture that actually does bear the fruit that God has has called us to bear. And so, as we work our way uh, through this morning, I just want to uh, outline a sh- uh, highlight within the passage three postures that Paul uh, deals with. Two that he discourages, one that he encourages us towards. Um, and that is a posture of aggression, a posture of apathy, or a posture of affection. A posture of aggression, a posture of apathy, or a posture of affection. First, we're going to look at the, the first two where he discourages us from, and then we'll move into where he, he's calling us to be. And So first, let's look at verses 1 through 2 in Titus chapter 3. Paul writes to Titus, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Again, in order to properly understand what Paul is reminding them of, we need to uh, again remember the kind of people and culture that Paul is addressing. Right, Crete is this, this island and territory of Rome, and they have a rowdy reputation. Uh, Paul himself cited earlier that they are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons and their own uh, poets and thinkers uh, write the same about them. They had a, a, a notorious reputation in the ancient world. Piracy was a really big problem there, though they had a lot of great ports that allowed for great travel. It also was just a, a, a dangerous place to do business. Um, and scandals were rampant there. So much so that even the powerful, um, uh, powerful nation of Rome had a hard time keeping this little island at bay. And so as this kind of cultural climate, um, there are a few ways that the believers there probably could be tempted to respond. And Paul wants to uh, put a finger on those things and say, no, this is, this is not a way to engage. It might seem like the most effective route, but this actually isn't going to lead to the fruit that we're looking for. And so the first one we're gonna look at, he uh, is a a posture of aggression, right? An active hostility towards those around him. We see this in uh, the verse when he says, to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling or to avoid fighting. Right. There's this this temptation within uh, within living in this kind of environment where instead of being submissive and obedient to authorities and avoiding fights and slanders, you can engage in all of those things for the sake of winning uh, more uh, more power and more um, more gain for your own tribe. See, a posture of aggression says those people are the problem and they need to be defeated. Right. It sets you up in opposition to those around you. And this wouldn't have been difficult for them to do because it was the air of their culture around them to quarrel and to slander and to lie and to claw and to get your way ahead. Whatever it takes to win more power and influence. Here's the thing, we are no different than them. To slander people on social media, Or to engage in cutting arguments about politics and culture wars and to fight tooth and nail to secure for ourselves and our tribe more power and more influence isn't novel. It's the way of the world around us. In fact, to engage in that sort of activity wouldn't raise an eyebrow. In fact, it's, it's encouraged in most places. And just as in the Cretan church, just like they needed to be warned so that they would not assume this kind of posture towards those around them. We, too, need to heed Paul's warning this way as well. And another alternative to that posture is a a posture of apathy. To keep that simple, a posture of apathy says those people are the problem and they need to be ignored. This error isn't spelled out uh, explicitly in our text, but it is ruled out by the text because of what Paul actually calls us to do for those around us. As we'll see in a little bit, Paul's charge towards us is leading us to engage with those around us in a way that uh, makes the gospel more appealing and leads them closer to Jesus, not further away. Notice in verses one through, uh, through two, Paul does not simply tell the Cretans how not to engage, but he also tells them how they ought to engage. This means it's not enough simply to uh, restrain from engaging within our culture poorly, Um, but to simply not engage at all is its own kind of disobedience. John Stott puts it this way in his commentary on Titus. He says, it is not enough for Christians to be law-abiding. We are to be public-spirited as well, ready to do whatever is good whenever we have the opportunity. Passivity is not love. Love is is an action, something that we do. And in Paul's instructions to the Cretans, he leaves no room for the kind of cold, nonchalant, we'll do our thing over here and you can do your thing over there. Both aggression and apathy are discouraged in the scriptures. And here's the reality. Just like the, Christ- the Cretans, we are prone to fall into one or both of those errors when we allow our beliefs and perceptions about people to be discipled by the culture around us instead of our Bible's. The reason Paul is so severe towards those false teachers in the church is because he knows that what we believe will ultimately impact how we live and how we live will impact those around us and how they perceive God. Theology and doctrine do not only inform our understanding of God, they also inform our understanding of humanity. That means it, it informs how we understand ourselves and how we are to relate to one another. Another reason why Paul is so severe um, towards uh, the false teaching, and particularly uh, we see here in this chapter by way of him encouraging Titus to avoid such people. Look at verses nine through 11. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You see, at first glance, it could be easy to think that what Paul is saying in these verses is uh, you should just join the cancel culture and cancel anybody in your life who's always wanting to argue about things that you find irrelevant. Right. Um, And that's that's not quite what Paul is getting at. You see, there's there's two layers of conversation going on uh, really throughout the book of Titus, but especially in this chapter. Um, There is a conversation that Paul is having with Titus as the leader of this church, explaining to him how he ought to lead the people. There is also the conversation that Paul and Timothy, uh, Paul and Titus are having with the church of Crete. And so here we see his instructions uh, to Titus are twofold in chapter in verse three. He gives them. Uh, he gives him a reminder, right? Remind them to live this way, and then in verse nine, he gives him uh, an instruction of what to avoid, and it's what we just read above. So he reminds them to be submissive and ready for every good work, and he says, secondly, avoid foolish controversies. In a way, Paul does not intend for the entire church to avoid those. En- uh, he intends for the entire church to avoid those anti-elders who lead people away from the truth of the gospel that they have been taught. But primarily what he is instructing here for Titus is a kind of pastoral discipline, a church discipline as we understand it. And here again, as in chapter one, Paul is reminding Titus of his responsibility as the leader of this church to protect the flock from those who are spewing uh, bad teaching, both in their words and in their actions and giving further uh, uh, understanding to even what Jesus calls us to in Matthew 18. And so there's a, there's a layer of this to which he wants the, the church in Crete, to to avoid these teachers. But there becomes a point where it, there, there needs to be uh, authority to step in to make a distinction between what is true and what is not. And so if we, if we tease this with the, the Matthew 18 model, it looks like this. Jesus says, if your brother has sinned against you in any way, you, yourself, go first and tell them his faults, not to slander them, not to gossip about them behind their back, not to quarrel with them, but to try to reason with them in order that you might be able to win them back into fellowship and into obedience. Again, if that doesn't work, he says, then you go with another brother or sister in the church, and you, again, try to uh, reason with him. Again, not to ostracize them, but in hopes of winning them back into fellowship and into obedience. It's only when such a person has persisted in their erroneous ways, both in their teaching and their actions, they're not willing to listen to your counsel or the counsel of others that they are then called to be brought before the church. And if even then, when they are reasoned with that they might be brought back into the fellowship and into obedience, then at that point, there is a responsibility for the leadership to create a distinction, not to uh, push them away but for them to be able to see as long as you choose to hold to this kind of erroneous behavior and or beliefs, you are choosing to operate in the dark and that in and of itself is a call back into repentance and into fellowship and into Christ likeness. And so this, with this being said and put, put on the table, what is the way forward for this church? How is Titus to lead them, what are they to do? If it is not through joining in the culture wars or sitting by passively in their Christian bubble, uh, what is it that Paul would have them do? And what we see in our text is that it is an active pursuit of the well-being of those around them by the power of the gospel. If we go back to verses one and two, particularly the end of of verse two, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and obedient, ready for every good work, Speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, and to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Remember, it's not enough for us as Christians to just be law-abiding, but we are called to be public-spirited, ready to do whatever is good whenever we have the opportunity, and I would add, for whoever is in need. Whatever is good whenever we can for whoever is in need. And this is precisely why Paul's charge is so striking when you really understand what he is asking of this church, and consequently us. You see, doing good works for those we love, though even that could be difficult at times, is relatively easy for us to do. The Bible says that even those who don't believe in God love those who love them. But the difficult thing is doing the costly good, the kind of good that takes some thought and some effort and requires some sacrifice particularly for people that we don't naturally love, and not just doing it reluctantly, but from a sincere heart. See, in, in, the, verse, uh, in the second part of verse two, Paul uses two words in the Greek um, to explain not just what the people of Crete were supposed to do, but how they were supposed to do it. What kind of heart were they called to carry out their good works around the, around the people that were there. And here's the thing. Um, If you remember back in chapter one and two, we got these exhaustive lists of things that you should do. Rather, it was what it looked like in the home and how you should act and treat here. And here he gives he gives these two dispositions. Right. One has a a external um, ramification and one has an internal. The first, uh, which is translated gentleness in our text has a, 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 a outward meaning uh, like in a courtroom setting where a judge who takes into consideration all of the context surrounding a matter and, uh, call and gives room for there to be a need for mercy, is willing to extend mercy, even where, even where punishment can rightly be exacted, he takes into consideration all of the circumstances, right? bringing it down a level. Uh, maybe you know, courtroom is, is out of touch, but maybe it's in the household, right? We've all been children, or some of you are still children. You know when you've been caught red-handed. You did it, right? You don't even know why you did it, but the moment you did it, you are like, "Eh, I'm in trouble. This isn't gonna work out too well for me. Um, You don't even wait for them to find out. You go and tell mom and dad, it's like, hey, remember you said don't touch the thing? I touched it, it broke. I wasn't trying to break, right? And you give your story, and why, and you cry a little bit, and mom and dad looks at you, and they're like, ah, again, and they're disappointed, and they hear you out. They know you're only four, and you, you know, <laughs> nothing that you just explained made any sense. But they take account of all of the circumstances in the situation, and they don't—they don't excuse your behavior, right? You still were disobedient. They're gonna call you not to do what you did again. Um, but every now and then, right, by God's grace. They extend you mercy you should have they should have took that iPad away they should have eliminated the screen time timeout spanking however that works in your house right it should have happened and they extended mercy because they took into consideration your age which you I knew what you meant you didn't do it on purpose it was an accident accidents happen. Uh, that kind of posture right it, it makes sense within that that setting in the home with a child Paul is saying we ought to extend that same kind of understanding to those around us when we're in the workplace, when we're in traffic, when we're out and about, right? With those who aren't, don't have that familial connection, but just because they're people as believers, we are called to have this kind of a uh, uh, quick to res- quick to give mercy mentality about us. Secondly, uh, what's translated in our passage, uh, perfect courtesy towards all um, elsewhere it could also be described as gentleness or meekness. But rather than uh, having more of an external ramification, this one points more inwardly. And it says to, it, it's about being able to exemplify that kind of uh, mercy that we just explained uh, and that humility and gentleness of heart in the midst of difficulty and suffering accompanied with faith in God. It's the kind of, the kind of picture of uh, extending uh, mercy in a situation where it not only is it that the other person is deserve uh, is undeserving of the mercy but also you have been hurt or crippled maybe even by what was done maybe we see this picture more fully when uh, Jesus after he is uh, all of his, his friends have been turned away namely Peter right who uh, betrays uh, betrays him in that he denies him three times and he comes back after his resurrection and he extends him mercy, right? Surely that's stung to have even a friend deny you, and yet he, he returns in this situation under great suffering and duress and still extends the mercy. This is the kind of posture that Paul is encouraging the Cretan church to assume towards those around them. He says, you wanna make change in your community, all of these things that I've called you to, with this kind of posture and heart is gonna to lead to that kind of change. You see, unlike the posture of aggression and apathy that says those people are the problem and they need to be defeated or those people are the problem and they need to be ignored, a posture of affection says you are lost and hurting just like I was. And what you need is the good shepherd. You see, when we are discipled by our Bibles and not the culture around us, we begin to use biblical categories in our dealings with one another. And the Bible gives us helpful categories to guide our dealings in this way. You see, there's really three. There are found sheep, there are lost sheep, and there's wolves in sheep's clothing. Right? We even get a picture of Jesus using these categories as he travels through um, the cities and he's healing and teaching uh, in the synagogue. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 9, Right. After he's got done uh, healing and, and and doing all of these things and is moving from town to town and he sees another crowd. And in verse 36, it says when he when he saw the crowds, when he saw all of the people in the city, the hurting, the loss, those who had been abused, those who had done the abusing, those who were suffering under oppression, those who were dealing the oppression, he saw all of the brokenness in the crowds. What, what, was, what was provoked in the heart of our savior when he looked out? It says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, we often can be tempted to see when we look out in the crowds if our hearts aren't tuned by the truth of the gospel. Rather than seeing helpless sheep like our savior did, what we see is a bunch of wolves. Right. Everybody around is just just wolves. And what wolves need is they need to be defeated. They need to be ignored. They need to be conquered. They are the wolves are the problem. We need We need to do away with them. The problem with that kind of assessment is, according to scripture, the wolves in sheep clothing aren't identified outside of the church. they're in the church, right? They're the, they're the false teachers, right? They're the ones that are disguised as sheep who, who think they hold to the truth, but as Paul said in the first chapter, right, actually what they spew is things that are causing divisions and tearing up whole households, right? That's what needs to be pushed to the side. When we look out in the world around us to the non-believers that are in our communities in our neighborhoods and in our workplace, we're called to see them the way Jesus did, to be moved with compassion, When Jesus looked out, he didn't see a bunch of wolves, but he said that he saw people in their sin and their brokenness, and it moved him. Literally, his inward parts moved. He was filled with affection for the people. And this is the model by which we are called to live after. The question is, how can any of us do that? How do we muster up the kind of Uh, of of heart and love like that of our savior to extend mercy to those around us who are undeserving, uh, especially in the moments when we feel the most pain by it and hurt by it um, and, and deceived and crushed by it. How do we, how do we still look out and see sheep and have affection in our hearts rather than aggression and apathy? Paul says, I hear your rebuttal and hear me out once more. Look at verse three. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, we were just like them. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul says you want to transform your community for the kingdom? Well, it's through the power of the gospel. And that means you need to constantly remember that you too were once a distressed and dejected sheep without a shepherd. And God met you not with aggression and not with apathy, but with affection and compassion and mercy and love. And he saved you. And those things changed you. You see, when we assume a posture of aggression and apathy, we distance ourselves from the nonbelievers around us as if God saved us because we were the deserving sinners and not them because they're the undeserving kind. But when our hearts and minds are discipled by the gospel and we have affection for those around us and empathy for them and see their need, we don't separate ourselves from them, but we see ourselves in them and their need for Christ the same way we needed Christ. You see, we don't do good works instead of believing the gospel. We do good works because we believe the gospel. And it is that truth that the triune love of God has appeared in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, whose ultimate act of compassion and mercy and love towards you has saved you from your sinful ways and renewed you from the inside out. That truth changes people and families and entire communities and countries. And it has been doing that exact work from the moment that Christ rose from the grave. You see, the gospel is the engine that empowers the entirety of the Christian life. You don't just need the gospel message so that you get in. The gospel sustains us in every way, including in our good works. And this is why we must often be reminded of the gospel. It's why Paul keeps saying insist on these things. Not only so we remember how we were made alive and united with Christ, but also that we might know why we were made alive. What is it all for? To be reminded that God's plan to restore all things to this day has not changed and that it is still being brought into completion because of Christ's victory on the cross. Tomorrow, uh, we get to celebrate another holiday. Today is Father's Day. Tomorrow, it's Juneteenth. um, And this is the second time we get to celebrate it as a national holiday. Uh, It's been celebrated for many years since then, but it's official for two years. And uh, if you don't, if you're unfamiliar with it, right, part of the celebration is uh, when, the, when the news that, uh, that, that slavery had been, was being abolished throughout uh, the, the US had, had gone out, uh, it did not fully reach Texas just quite yet. The story goes kind of like this. Emancipation Proclamation, in effect January 1st, 1863. Problem is, is that the reality of that message and that proclamation did it become a felt reality throughout the United States uh, until those confederate uh, states were back under uh, union rule. And so as they traveled around and the message got around, slowly but surely those things started to change. Well, over the course of time, uh, there were slaveholders who were, were fleeing from their, their places of, of origin and moving to Texas to, to find solace to be able to continue uh, their, uh, their slaveholding. And what eventually happened was a man by the name of General Gordon Granger reaches the shore of Galveston with the message of emancipation. You see, prior to that, a lot of the, the, the slaves in Texas had heard of uh, this, this rumor of emancipation and that, they, that they've heard that this has been taking a place around. But it hadn't become a reality where they were yet until he lands on the ground with this authoritative message um, and authority uh, uh, in his person to be able to declare this is what is now True, And at that moment, the reality that was uh, declared two years ago in D.C. became a reality in the state of Texas and since then has been celebrated as as Juneteenth, the day that freedom reached this point. Brothers and sisters, uh, similar to this narrative, there was a proclamation that was made all the way back in the Garden of Eden long ago that one day a son would be born and that he would crush the head of the serpent. And for so many years since then, there had been uh, stories and rumors heard of this Messiah that would come and would do just that very thing. And up until then, it was this thing that was hoped for and looked forward to and thought about and written about and sung about. And then one day the child was born. His name was Jesus and what was once a a beautiful message and a song and things that were written about became a felt reality as the message of the love of God uh, was joined together with the love of God himself in the person of Jesus and we got to see him for who he was. And he walked this earth and he lived the perfect life that none of us could, extending this kind of grace and mercy and truth to all of those around him and ultimately dying in our place that we might be reunited with God. You see, there was a moment when what was once far off became a reality, when what was declared was also demonstrated. And that happened ultimately in the person of Christ. And because of that, many of us sit in this room now today uh, alive and reunited to God. And brothers, I want to encourage us to know that just uh, just like uh, this general, we, too, have been handed a message to continue the work that Jesus has already begun that we have the opportunity and have been given the mandate to carry both in word and in deed the truth of the gospel that others might come to know Jesus the same way we have, that they might hear about him and that our lives might demonstrate the goodness and the mercy and the grace that was embodied in his own life and that uh, the truth of him would become that much more appealing and, 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 and be able to be grasped. And it is that, that thing, that truth, this gospel, that changes us. It changes us. It has been changing people for centuries, and it is continuing and will continue to be potent enough to change the hearts and souls of man until the day that Jesus returns again. May we be a people who both in actions and in deed adorn the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that that, that Jesus is not just a a good example of what it's like to to be a a kind person, Lord, that he's full of more power than that, full of more authority than that, Lord, but rather his life, his death, his resurrection um, has power, oh God, that it is it is power enough to save, Lord God, to, to bring a lost and broken soul from darkness into light. Lord God, and that we get to be uh, participants in that work, Lord. Your word says that we are uh, your ambassadors as if you were making your plea through us. And that Lord, that despite what uh, the culture around us may, uh, may say or may think that this This is the true narrative that we find ourselves in. And this is the true message that changes uh, lives around us. That if we are in Christ and we have him and we have his spirit and we have his word, we have everything that we need to be able to effectively um, uh, reach and minister to those around us in a way that is meaningful and brings change and helps them see you more clearly, that they too might have a relationship with you. Well, may that be the testimony of uh, Citizens Church that we are a people who not only declare the truth of the gospel with our lips, but demonstrate it with our lives. But we love you. See your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.